We, we have a lot of challenges because people don't want to relinquish that power. But I think that although Bitcoin may pose what seems like a threat to the people that are in power, the greater threat is actually not getting this, not getting this right and descending into a deglobalized world where we're all just infighting and everyone becomes, you know, everyone creates their own central bank digital currencies and and we isolate ourselves as like these network states and we're fighting among I mean that that future to me looks like war and violence and exorbitant costs because supply chains break down. Um yeah. a bitcoin world to me is abundance, is opportunity, is hope. Uh, and so I think that the greater threat is actually not getting this right on Bitcoin. No, no. All right, what is going on, T-Phrase Nation? Welcome back to another video. We have a very special guest today. Her name is Natalie Brunel. She is a very smart, educated uh, Bitcoiner and journalist that's been in the space for quite a while now. She's been uh with people and interviewing people like michael saylor cnn and other big media channels so this episode specifically we're going to be talking about bitcoin the current market sentiment obviously ftx and everything in between if it's your first time on the channel make sure you subscribe drop a like and leave us a comment after you watch the video and if you're looking for more ways to keep up with crypto make sure you subscribe to our free daily newsletter in the description below but besides that let's get right into it all right welcome back we are live another episode today another great guest we have natalie brunel sorry if i butcher that um but we have a very special guest again extremely well educated financially very literate bitcoiner journalist also a podcast host natalie what's going on it's a pleasure having you. hi thanks so much for having me super excited to to be with you guys today yeah, well, I'm personally very excited to have you here as a fellow Bitcoiner. Uh, you know, I went deep into your stuff. I love all of it, learned a lot. So if you guys want to learn more about Bitcoin, check out her podcast. She has two. One's Hard Money. One's uh, Coin Stories, I believe. Yes. Thank okay. you. Great. Thanks so no much. No problem. Fun. Well, I wanted to kick this off because I think you start your podcast in an incredible way, which is you ask what is your relationship with money? And I think that question sometimes can be misunderstood if you're not a Bitcoiner. And the reason you're asking that question is because there is a problem with our fiat system, our system of money, right? And Bitcoin has tried to solve that. In my opinion, it does. So I want to ask you, what is your relationship with money? And I want Mo, you to answer as well. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I... um I think growing up, I was just always so worried that I wouldn't be financially secure because um, my family came from Poland and started over. My my mom and dad were, I, I really admire them because they were older when they came. They were 38 and 41, not knowing the language and having to really start from scratch. And so we didn't have much growing up. Um, and even though we didn't, I still had a childhood that was really rich with just love and this feeling that my mom, my mom and dad pushed me and said, I can be anything that I want to be. Like we came to this country for you so that you could pursue whatever dream you want and you can make it happen. And I love that that's what the American dream represents. This idea that it does not matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter if you came from a wealthy family or a poor family, or you were in this country or that country. If you work hard, if you're a good person, and if you pursue your dreams and persevere, you can make them happen. And so for me, I think money was always tied to this idea of security and achieving your dreams and pursuing something that makes you really happy. Um, and so I've you know, worked really hard to sort of justify the sacrifice that my parents made because I never wanted that to go to waste. I never wanted to do anything that would bring almost like, you know, shame or, or, or disappointment to my parents because they gave up so much for me to be here. Um, and so money for me was always really tied to ambition and success and career. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're in, in company with two other immigrants, so we understand completely. <laughs> awesome. Natalie, I want to take it a step back. If For the people obviously tuning in now, I'm sure they've all noticed you on multiple channels and, uh, you know, podcasts and interviews, but when you first started in crypto, what was crypto and the industry back then look like? And how did you get started? What was your Bitcoin moment? 
Yeah. So for me, my journey started in 2017. I was a local TV news reporter in Sacramento, California, covering the state capitol and all kinds of different stories. And I would go to San Francisco a lot on my weekends just because it was a bigger city. I had a lot of friends and a boyfriend there. And in the circle that I was in, I started to hear about Coinbase and Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrencies. And like so many people, I was very skeptical and dismissive. And I've shared this on other shows, you know, I wish I could go back in time and shake myself and give myself, you know, the Bitcoin standard and tell myself to sit down and really study this because at the time I just sort of thought, oh, it's, you know, it's like a stock. This could go to zero. It's digital. So it could be hacked. And I didn't take the time to really learn about it because I also really didn't understand money or our current financial system. I knew that something was broken and I felt like things were always sort of rigged to uh, advantage the people at the top at the expense of everybody else, but I didn't know how or why. Um, and so I, you know, I bought a little bit thinking this is sort of a gamble. It's like a stock. And then two years later, I had a mentor of mine who I had mentioned that I bought Bitcoin or I have Bitcoin and he went off online and he started to research it. And then he came back to me and said, Natalie, this is like everything that you talk about in terms of your family's background and, 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 you know, how the poor getting poor and there's this great wealth disparity. All of this is actually fixed by Bitcoin, you know, read this book, read the Bitcoin standard. And so I finally read it. And when I did, it was like this veil was lifted off my eyes and I connected a lot of dots, um, from my reporting career, as well as my family's background. And I was just, I was hooked. I was like, I have to know everything about this. Uh, and I started investing more. And then eventually I started my podcast and, you know, long story short, here I am. <laughs> That's awesome. You mentioned something that I want you to elaborate on. So I think most people who don't know about Bitcoin and the difference between Bitcoin and the rest of crypto kind of lump it all together, right? And that's kind of what Bitcoin maxis are trying to veer away from is make a clear separation between Bitcoiners and the rest of crypto. And I think one way to do that is by talking about the difference between a security and a commodity. So, you know, Bitcoin isn't like your regular stock. Um, Could you explain the difference between Bitcoin and the rest of crypto and how that intertwines with uh, securities and commodities? Sure. So I think that there's going to be a lot of, um, in terms of policymakers and regulators weighing in over the next year because of what we just saw with FTX. But really the, the idea, the, the, at the core is the, the difference between decentralization and centralization. Is there an issue or is there someone who can either manipulate or influence the protocol or the, the cryptocurrency? And so I don't, you know, it's, it's funny to me that any of the other ones are even called cryptocurrencies because they don't have the properties of money that Bitcoin does. And so again, I think fundamentally that, that idea of decentralization, which for Bitcoin, you know, it had to grow. It had that network effect over the last 14 years to become the dominant blockchain that is truly distributed around the whole world and no one can influence it. And in 2017, when the block size wars happened and they tried to expand the block size and and essentially the users won. The users won and they said that we want to keep this small. We want to keep this the way that it was intended by Satoshi so that it could be as decentralized uh, as possible and so that as many nodes can can run the the ledger as possible. And I think that that was a big hurdle that we came, we came past. And so, you know, a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, including the FTT token that blew up, there is a group of individuals or sometimes one individual that controls the supply and the issuance and what happens, what, you know, what roadmap going forward, um, the developers are going to take. And so that should be a red flag for people that 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 sounds more like a security, um, you know, a common enterprise that people are hoping to profit from, as opposed to a commodity, something like a gold, something like apples or wheat. Bitcoin is the same way. It costs energy or you need to purchase Bitcoin yourself um, and no one is issuing it. So 
I think that we have to keep making that distinction for people because the the rest of the space, it will be regulated. And a lot of these other crypto projects will be deemed securities. And there's nothing wrong with a security. You know, Google stock is a security, Apple stock, Tesla, they're securities, but there needs to be proper disclosure. And when you look at these actual companies, these tech companies that are properly regulated as securities, I mean, their disclosures are sometimes a thousand pages long because people have to be aware of the risks. They have to be aware of who's in charge what the leadership is doing. Um, and then they can make the, their decision about whether they want to put it in their portfolio. But right now, it's sort of this wild west and there is no regulation. There is no control. And um, and so people could lose their whole life savings. And, and unfortunately, some of these companies, including FTX, they weren't even selling real Bitcoin. They were selling paper promises. So people thought they were buying Bitcoin and getting some crazy yield on it. And in reality, they have no keys. Um, so again, I think that distinction is really important. And in the future, I mean, Bitcoin's already coming out shining because it is a commodity. It is the only thing that the CFTC, the SEC's leadership has deemed a, a commodity as well as a form of property. It's not going to be subject to any of these, uh, these risks and uh, disclosures that securities are. And I think that pretty soon we're going to see the difference and we're going to see a lot of, uh, cryptocurrencies go away. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. And I think this is a perfect segue. So I was actually reading a report from Glassnode, I think, uh, yesterday morning, right? And uh had this one key line that stood out to me. It was like, hey, most people who came into Bitcoin and invested over the last six to eight months are actually at a like historically amount of losses compared to every single run before, right? And we know, obviously, the majority of those losses came from all the bad actors in the space this year. So my question here is like, how much of you think the mass adoption that we actually brought into the space this year is now dissatisfied and untrustworthy when it comes to crypto? And like, did it really help us or did it set us back a few more years, especially with the FTX implosion recently? Yeah, I mean, I definitely can understand why people who got into the space in the last two years, maybe when Bitcoin was over 30, 40, 50,000, and they could feel really discouraged. However, you know, we always remind people that you have to zoom out and look at a long time horizon. I don't know of any Bitcoiner that ever says, hey, buy Bitcoin so you could cash it out in six months to a year. It's extremely volatile because it's very new. It has a lot of these marginal players that are cross-collateralizing different digital assets. FTX was doing that, certainly. We had a big bubble that was formed because of all the money printing in response to the pandemic. So things are more volatile than ever. And now here we are, you know, the government's trying to tighten things and raise interest rates, increase the, the cost of borrowing. And so everything is sort of starting to unwind a bit. But if you can can think about the Bitcoin that you purchased or that you're thinking about purchasing and don't look at it for the next two, three, four, five, ten 10 years, this is the long-term savings strategy, then history shows that Bitcoin has been the best performing asset out of pretty much everything. And so if you buy with the idea of holding and you don't think about what's happening in the short term, most people actually end up very far in the green, not just, you know, preserving their purchasing power and avoiding inflation, but actually seeing really true appreciation and gains, especially those that have gotten in over the last couple of years. Um, so I try to remind people of that because our purchasing power with our dollar is collapsing in real time. Even though the dollar's quote unquote strong right now as they raise interest rates, that's all temporary. And we know that the government has to print. We have to in order to service and inflate away our debt. And so in the future, one thing we can guarantee is that our currency, our dollar will be worth less. And we have to find places for safe haven for our the the economic value of our money to be preserved. And for me, Bitcoin is one of the safest places you could put it because again, it can't be manipulated. It can't be controlled by anyone. It's not subject to any government or third party. Um, whereas everything else is sort of, you know, you could put it in real estate, but right now the housing market's sort of starting to decline. And also you have to pay property taxes and also you have to pay to maintain that place. Uh, you could put it into gold, but gold hasn't really performed very well over the last decade. You could put it into stocks, but all of those are centralized securities. And so do, which company do you choose? How do you choose the company? You know, they've per performed pretty well over the last 10 years due to quantitative easing. But what about the next 10 years where we seem to be entering more of a commodity cycle? I mean, there's so much risk and you almost have to, you know, 
have a second job as like a trader and, and become a portfolio manager and expert. Whereas Bitcoin is kind of more of this like set it and forget it mentality, put some away, you know, decide what you want to allocate of your savings or your portfolio that you feel comfortable with, where you don't have to worry about the volatility and just keep stacking, DCAing, and don't think about it for the next couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, that's my game plan. I'm DCAing, stacking my sats. That's all I touch. I don't touch any other crypto because Bitcoin is the one I believe in. Um, but you mentioned something about time horizon, right? Like Bitcoin operates on a much longer time horizon to see returns on your investment than, let's say, the altcoins, right? Um, so something people don't realize is after the dot-com bubble burst, which crypto maxis love to talk about, Amazon was down for a very long time, right? And now it's this behemoth, but it's hard to picture when it was getting serious haircuts during that dip, right? So mm -hmm. as a Bitcoiner, in that, in let's say 100 years, where do you see Bitcoin and where do you see fiat? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a wonderful comparison. I actually discussed it on one of my last episodes of the show because there are a lot of similarities between the dot-com bubble and the crypto bubble in the same way that you could, anyone could create a website, anyone could create a cryptocurrency, but the internet, you know, this was this truly revolutionary, um, technology that's transformed all of our lives when it comes to how we transact information and how we do commerce. And so the internet went on to transform our lives. And some of these companies that did come down like 90, 95%, like Amazon, they went on to transform our lives as well. And so the, the period, you know, of pain of the bear market, you know, that if you zoom in and you're in that time period, you probably can't see beyond a couple of years to see how, you know, Amazon would take over. Um, but I think the same thing is happening with Bitcoin. A lot of these cryptocurrencies are going to get washed out. And in the end, Bitcoin is going to continue to strengthen, continue to gain in adoption. And I think, oh my gosh, a hundred years from now, I do, I am a per personally a believer that Bitcoin will be the dominant monetary technology. It will be the store of value. It'll be a neutral reserve asset and, it'll, and people will be transacting in, in Satoshis. I believe that because um, I think that Bitcoin is unstoppable. And I think that um, the incentive structures, it's sort of like putting, like taking greed and turning it on its head. Everyone benefits from everybody else's greed in a sense, and no one can control it. Um, so I think that it will continue to grow. However, it will, it will face a lot of challenges, right? Because the cantillionaires and the people at the top who have the power over money and it's so tied to the state right now, they aren't going to want to relinquish that very easily. And it is hard to understand Bitcoin. So we have hurdles and challenges ahead and education is very, very important so that the public doesn't get misled down these other paths or blockchains or you know, uh, consensus mechanisms that supposedly sound better PR wise, but are not Bitcoin and don't have the great properties that Bitcoin does to become, you know, truly meritocratic democratic money. Uh, so I think that eventually we will be on the Bitcoin standard, but along the way, it's going to be choppy. Um, there are going to be countries that go the wrong way. There are going to be other countries that benefit because they did you know, adopt Bitcoin and put it in their reserves. I think some countries will print money to buy Bitcoin. I think others will completely ban it like China. Um, so I think it's going to be an interesting couple of decades, but I think Bitcoin will win because it is better. It is the best engineered money that's ever been invented. So you said a lot of great things there, Natalie. And I think one thing that obviously I want to touch on is like what the public portrays of Bitcoin, right? And I think the, the, the way pu the public views Bitcoin right now is just this like one way to get rich. Two is this coin, right, that you can use to buy stuff online or it was this thing to buy stuff online that you're not really supposed to buy in real life. Right. And then now we're seeing that that public also be manipulated in a way where it's like, hey, this guy who just stole thirty two billion dollars. Right. Is now starting to get portrayed as a victim. Right. All due to risk management greed, so and so and so and so forth. So two questions here. One is why do you think SBF is still not in jail, right? Uh, compared to like, say the guy who, you know, created Tornado Cash and we've seen how quick he was obviously uh, prisoned. 
Two is what happens if this same media narrative that is happening right now with the SBF situation continues to go the opposite of where Bitcoiners want Bitcoin to go on cryptocurrency? So what if that that Bitcoin narrative continues to be like, hey, it's a way to make money. It's very volatile. Stay away from it unless you have money to spare. Yeah. So I'll start with the the SBF. Um, I I'm a little bit surprised that he's not arrested yet, but at the same time, you know, he built this offshore exchange and I think American, the U S authorities are building a case and they have a couple of challenges because of the fact that this is all offshore and unregulated. And a lot of the rules honestly haven't even been made yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the securities exchange commission, they're working off of the Howey test, which was created in the 1930s to determine whether something is a security and whether these companies are essentially breaking rules. Now on top of that, you're creating a company that is existing in a different country with a, with different rules, with different laws, a different jurisdiction, and you have customers around the world. And so I think they're just trying to, you know, work through the mud on this whole thing. Besides, um, I mean, his statements in, in public, I cannot believe that he went out there and tried to campaign as this, you know, victim, like you said, like he's just this, you know, poor guy who made a couple of risk management mistakes. That's not it at all. I mean, anyone who understands anything about trading and this type of technology knows that he was doing something completely illegal, which is why he was in the Bahamas. He would never have gotten away with it if he had set up shop in New York or Florida. So what is the reason that he set up a shop in the Bahamas? Well, it was because it would be harder you know, for, for people to go after him. And, and then he created this token. He, he was, the two companies were essentially a market maker. They would wash trade and they would pump up the price of the token. And then they would use this vapor token as collateral for real money and for loans. And they would use depositors money and they would wire it back and forth. I mean, this is like, he's not dumb. He went to MIT. He knows what he did is wrong. I think the guy just thought he was going to get away with it because Bitcoin was maybe going to come back. I mean, I, a lot of people out there, even though they recognize that the government was printing a lot of money, I think that they saw this space as finally coming into its own. And they thought Bitcoin was maybe going to soar to 100, 150 before it came down and found support at like $50,000. So the longer that this stuff is pumped up, the longer he could get away with it. And he can tell himself all the stories he wants of, oh, I had these good intentions and I wanted to help pandemic prevention and this and that. But at the end of the day, he paid off politicians. He wanted his own set of rules. He wanted to be the favored cryptocurrency exchange that all the celebrities were attached to that donated to the political campaigns. And then if you look at the balance sheet that was released uh, this week of Alameda Research, like all the companies that they were investing in, I mean, this was just his little cookie jar slush fund that he he did what he wanted with. Um, so I think it'll be interesting when the case is finally dropped and there are charges, it looks like Caroline Ellison, who was just spotted in New York City at a coffee shop, she might be cooperating with authorities, which makes absolute sense because she's going to want to reduce her sentence. She's going to want a plea deal. So she's going to give them all the information that they want. And it's going to be a battle between these two as well as other executives at the company. And you know, I hope justice is served. But at the same time, you're never going to get that money back. Some people lost their life savings And even seeing SBF in jail is not going to bring back someone's life savings. And that's really, really sad. But I hope it's a lesson learned for everybody who's looking at this space, who's investing in this space. Do not trust these offshore, unregulated, wild, wild west exchanges that are promising you yield. You're the yield. (laughs) <laughs> You're the yield for them. So, um, so I, I, you know, I hope it's a lesson learned. And, and I, again, I think Bitcoin will come out shining, even though right now it's painful. And of course, the people that are new or skeptical who haven't done their work and haven't studied, they're going to look at this and be like, wow, this is a dangerous space. I'm glad I didn't put my money in or I lost some, so I'm not going to put more. But this is why it's so important to educate people about Bitcoin, about mining, about decentralization, about money. What is money and how our banking system works? Because when you start to peel back the layers of that onion, you start to really appreciate, A, why Bitcoin was invented and why it is superior to these other assets that have been created in the space. Um, so I think ultimately, you know, it will help Bitcoin. But in the meantime, it's kind of painful. But at the same time, a lot of us were wishing for these prices, right, to, to be able to stack a little bit more. And you can stack a little bit more. 
Um, but I think that there is also some more pain ahead because so many companies were cross, cross collateralized with FTX. Genesis right now is having an issue trying to raise a billion dollars. Um, there are other companies in the space that I think, you know, have weak balance sheets and they've created their own tokens and, and we don't have all the information on whether those dominoes are going to fall. So if you have your money on one of these exchanges, I would really consider learning about self-custody and taking it off, especially exchanges that are offshore and especially exchanges that are creating their own token. Be careful. That's like a big warning sign for me. That's really interesting because I think Binance is taking over the narrative that SBF had in June as like the hero of crypto. He's coming in to save the day. He's our guy. But he checks the box of creating his own air token. He has a centralized exchange. It's mainly offshore. I mean, there is a US version, but Binance International is the one that's more used. Um, mm -hmm. So all these signs to me point to something happening with Binance as well. I don't want to speculate too much, but I wouldn't consider myself safe if I was using Binance. Um, so on that note, what do you use for self-custody? What do you recommend? Yeah. So I don't recommend um, specific companies, but I do recommend cold storage. So I did a lot of homework. Um, and I think, you know, each company offers something different. Some of them are a little bit more complicated. Some of them, um, you know, the the platforms and and the the sort of features are different. So I think everyone needs to make a personal decision. And again, now you're talking about centralized entities that are creating these products. So I don't want to endorse any right. one of them. But I do recommend learning about self-custody and cold storage so that you know that when you have those 12 words, your seed phrase, you're putting it in a place that you trust and that's safe. Uh, multi-sig, I think, is a really great option for a lot of people because it gives you the um, ability to sort of distribute your, your security to a couple of different locations. You could have three of five keys. You could have, you know, two of three. Um, so a lot of people that I know do multi-sig. I, I personally haven't gone down that path yet, although I'm considering it. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I recommend people look into the space when it comes to cold storage. There are really great companies, whether it's Trezor, Ledger, Blockstreams, Jade, uh, the cold card, the cold wallet card. Um, so there are a lot of different areas, but you know, it just takes a little bit of time. It's almost like some people, I, I remember being 16 years old and being afraid to, to drive. I, I remember I was like, Oh my God, I don't know if I really want my license because I don't know if I want to get behind the wheel of like a car. <laughs> I was terrified I, I, and I have no idea why. Right. But like you, you get into the car and you start driving and you realize that it just takes a little bit of knowledge and practice and repetition. And all of a sudden, like you're a pro, right? These, these the cold storage seems so complicated for a lot of people, but when you actually go to open up one of your, your cold storage wallets that you buy, you follow the directions. It's not that hard. It's really not that hard to become your own bank. And now you have 12 words or a little hard drive that can take your entire wealth anywhere in the world. And we've never had a piece of technology that could do that. You always had to trust a third person, a middleman, an intermediary, and you couldn't easily transport it or send it across the planet. And now we have that. We have that ability. Um, it is incumbent upon us to have personal responsibility and make sure we keep our seed phrase and our and our um, you know our cold storage while it's safe. But it's not as hard as it looks. So I really do encourage people to get over that hurdle of worrying. You know, I. I, I I can relate to that feeling of when you're transferring to your cold storage wallet and you're like, oh my God, did I get it all right? Did I get my wallet address right? Um, but it's, I think it's really great. And I think a lot of this will, will become more mainstream over time. So it won't be, it won't feel like, you know, you're, you're doing something that not a lot of people are doing. Funny story. I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but the first ledger I ever bought, I actually didn't save my seed phrase and I forgot the password on. Well, luckily enough, I had only sent one wow. transaction. It was a test transaction. And that day I had a heart attack and I'm like, oh my God, imagine I would have sent all the crypto I really had to that ledger. Um, but yeah, I can definitely yeah. I can definitely see why a lot of people hate it uh, or at least are just skeptical of the actual process in terms of using cold storage. Uh, I have a question for you, Natalie. I think this is perfect for you to answer, right? Mark Cuban and a lot of people we look up to as investors, right, always say, hey, uh, Bitcoin is only worth what somebody else will pay for, right? And a lot of people follow these investors and, and some of these, you know, entrepreneurs that we've grew up watching our whole lives. So what is the argument to that? Like, what if 
Bitcoin, okay, the supplies, everything is mine. The supply is safe, right? No more printing of Bitcoin. What happens then if everybody owns Bitcoin and nobody wants to buy it anymore and there's no real use case in terms of holding value or whatever the case may be? What's, what's next? Okay. Well, I, I I don't know what would cause that to happen. Um, you know, unless there's some sort of black swan, black swan, and there's some issue with the actual um, software. But uh, but look, I mean, Mark Cuban's argument is interesting to me because you can really say that about anything, right? I mean, what's the value of a house? What's the value of a bar of gold? Um, we as humans over time have chosen different technologies as money, and that. Money has transformed. And now, if we really look at it from a critical uh, angle, how our money has turned into just a system of credit and debt and been papered over and what that's done to society, making the rich very, very rich because they're able to use leverage and borrow at low interest rates and, and essentially create these um, these asset bubbles and equities and real estate and everybody else is working harder and harder for money that's worth less. And they can't, you know, they're the idea of taking care of their family, of buying a house, of paying for a college education, everything's becoming more and more difficult in the greatest country in the world. Like, why is that? We have to look at what's causing that. And what's causing that is a system where very few people get to control the supply of money and they benefit from it the most and they can expand the supply and everyone else is left, you know, trying to chase yield and trying to maintain and preserve the value of their of their money. Um, and so Bitcoin, I think, is just this, this true technological breakthrough because now you have something that no one can control. It will only be 21 million capped. The issuance schedule is laid out before you. I have no idea how many dollars are going to be printed over the next 10 years. I have no idea how much Ethereum is circulating, but I know exactly how much Bitcoin there will be until 2040, 2140, when we go off into the transaction um, model and, and, and miners are making fees on transactions as opposed to getting a block subsidy. Um, so it's predictable. It's math. It's open source. It's transparent. It's auditable. I mean, all these great qualities that we've really never had in a form of money. And it's not based on credit because every 10 minutes, the blocks have to settle and be, you know, the next one is added to the to the chain. And so you know who owns every single Bitcoin at any given time. And I think we've never had a system like that. And um, you know, things like real estate, would would your house have gone up in value however much it's gone up if there weren't so many more units of money added into the system? Right? I mean, the house is not becoming more valuable. In fact, it's probably aging. And unless you've done a whole bunch of remodel work and paid a bunch of money, it's actually probably worth less in terms of its utility value because it's older. But yet real estate is one of the safest places that you could put your money, especially over the last 10 years, because it just explodes in value and it's more scarce than our actual money. And Jeff Booth does a great job, you know, talking about this. He envisions a world in the future where, you know, Bitcoin demonetizes things like real estate and it actually drops down to a more affordable utility value because no one's just like slamming all their money into it, trying to preserve their wealth, which is what's ha been happening. You know, if you think of a monopoly board and all the properties that are around the board, and if you flood that board with a ton more money, like paper monopoly dollars, well, the price of everything on, on every single square is going to go up because there's so much more money in the system. Those houses aren't worth more. Those plots of land aren't worth more. There's just more money floating around that has to go somewhere. Um, and so I think people need to really consider that because that's one of the things that's great about Bitcoin. Again, it's predictable. It's auditable. No one can change it. No one will control it. And I'd rather put my money into something like that, that I can rely on based on math and science and physics, as opposed to something where I don't have a guarantee that the property that I buy is going to have, you know, the kind of, you know, wealth appreciation that we've seen in the past, but also who's going to be the uh, governor or mayor that comes in? Are they going to tax me more? Are they going to, you know... At the end of the day, you're losing money every single year with a lot of other investments due to inflation, due to fees, due to taxes. Um, and with Bitcoin, I think you know it's the one thing that universally will have the best chance of of growing as a store of value. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of how I think about it. No, yeah, that was a great answer. It reminded me I saw something on Twitter the other day where someone had tweeted that you know. These guys, they have the money printer and they're asking for us to give them money, which makes no sense. Um, but I think what you're touching on, I want to get a little bit more political on it. Um, 
So printing money is something that most Americans don't really think about or realize is happening, right? And since the 2008 crash, we've been in this extraordinary bubble of quantitative easing, which just means the circulation of more and more dollars into our uh, economy, right? And in all of our lifetimes, we've only ever known the U.S. dollar to be the world reserve currency, We've never seen um, the 100, 200 years before us where it was the British pound. And a few hundred years before that, it was the Dutch currency. Um, and Ray Dalio, he has a great book on this called Changing World Order. Um, I totally recommend you guys to read it if you're interested in politics and the rise and fall of dynasties and power. But um, so speaking on that, you have this great um, little bite that I saw on your profile, Twitter profile of you talking about the U.S. going from a creditor nation to a debtor nation. And I mm -hmm. think this is so essential to understand what that really means in order to understand what Bitcoin is doing. So if you could, if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so we, we went from being the world's largest creditor nation to being the world's largest debtor nation. And what's really sad is a lot of well-intentioned policies have really destroyed the American dream and the middle class and made it so much harder for everyone to afford the kind of things that we were talking about earlier. We used to have strong manufacturing here. We used to be the country that had everybody's gold, and we created this monopoly when we um, devised the that the dollar would be the global reserve currency, and it would be pegged to you know a gold backing at first after World War II, and then we shifted off of that because what we what did we do? We printed money. We printed money in order to finance social programs in the fifties and sixties, and we printed money in order to go into the Vietnam War, and so other countries. They saw what we were doing. They wanted their gold back. And they were going to basically do a run on the bank when it came to getting their gold claims back and, and um, bring them back to their shores. Uh, I, I remember a story where France basically famously sent a ship. They were like, give us our gold back. And what did Nixon do? Well, he uh, got together with Kissinger and a couple of the other officials and said, we're going to go off the gold standard because we can't we can't lose our position. So basically, we said we're not going to fulfill the promise. We, we defaulted on our promise, essentially, and we went onto the paper standard. The gold um, in the free market just skyrocketed. Obviously, we had a period of inflation. Um, but we, we have this an exorbitant privilege because during the same amount of time, um, during that, that decade, we also created the petrodollar. So we created a new monopoly on money, and we basically tied our currency, the dollar to oil and everything had to be priced in, in dollars. So there became an international demand for dollars. And we created this, this alliance with Saudi Arabia and other nations. And so everyone had to pay for oil in dollars, the petrodollar. Um, and so we've been able to sort of carry out this, this grand privilege through the U.S. being the global reserve currency and the petrodollar. So there's a constant demand for dollars, and we've been able to export our inflation to other countries. Meanwhile, a strong, like a, when you weaken our dollar and you strengthen other currencies, that means that our, our exports are going to go down. So we've shipped off manufacturing and all these jobs and the, the labor class really overseas, especially what we've seen when, when China opened up its capital markets. A lot of the manufacturing went over there. And so again, we're like hauling out the core of society, the middle class that made up the majority of the American public went from, you know, over 60% of the American public was part of the strong middle class. Now it's down to 40 something percent because people are becoming poorer and poorer. And, um, and it's really sad because what, what happens, Ray Dalio talks about this at the end of a debt cycle, at the end of these empires, the currency is debased. People feel frustrated. Populism grows because people want a place to blame and they want a political savior and they divide into different camps and parties and silos. And it's not even a political issue. The fact is your money is rotting away and you have to work harder and harder for money that's essentially losing value. Um, you have to stick at places where you are hoping that you'll get yield or you'll be able to maintain the power of the, of the, of the dollar that you have. Most people have chosen real estate um, because they're so so many incentives, right? And you can take on huge leverage as an American family to buy real estate. Um, so there are, and we've, we've made uh, tax incentives for 401ks so that we prop up the equities bubble as well. We've done all these things that at the end of the day, maybe they had good intentions to start, but they are destroying American society and they're making it so the American worker can't keep up 
can't keep up and feels frustrated by the elites at the top that are benefiting from low interest rates and quantitative easing and all of the the debt that we're going into. Um, so we need to take a hard look at this system because now now what do we do? Like you you mentioned, the global reserve currency has been the dollar since the 1940s. Most of us, you know, have never known anything else. We don't even remember the gold standard, but now we have this organic techno technological revolution happening where we can have hard money again in a digital format. We can have a sound system that's based on actual value and supply and demand and sort of stabilize and reorder our economy. But it's a neutral money. It is not, it's not necessarily American unless America does the right thing and puts a bunch of it on its balance sheet and wants to be, you know, a leader around the world in terms of mining. Unfortunately, Bitcoin is not just American. Bitcoin is global. Bitcoin's Bitcoin is every nationality. And so I hope America makes the right decision because right now we're just a country of debt. We're a country of debtors. Everybody's in debt. Savings is at an all-time low. We don't think far into the future and these long time horizons because most people simply can't. They're just trying to make it day to day, trying to pay their mortgage, trying to pay for their kids' expenses. And so again, we're growing. The fabric is pulling us apart. And I think we need to come together again. That's why I, I actually see Bitcoin as a very unifying thing because it's not the left's fault. It's not the right's fault. It's the money's fault. We need to take a hard look at what our money is doing to society so that we can rebuild and become competitive again and provide value again. Um, and if we take advantage of what Bitcoin offers in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship and the jobs that could be created, we could maintain this sort of superpower status as opposed to allowing other countries to, to look at us right now and say, you know what? Your treasuries, we're going to drop them and we're going to sell them because you keep printing too much money. We don't trust it. We're going to peg our currencies to gold or we're going to create our own digital currencies, which is exactly what they're doing with BRICS. It's what Russia's doing with gold. It's what China's doing with the digital yuan. They're, they're making moves because we've, we've really exploited our privilege as the global reserve um, currency. And, and that's why I think it's important to educate policymakers because they're the ones that you know can help make some of these decisions, make it easier for people to hold Bitcoin, make it easier for people to mine Bitcoin. Um, and hopefully they're getting, being educated by the right people and not the, the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world. <laughs> I think you touched on a lot of great points there, Natalie. And, and looking at like some of the narratives that's going on, right? I think a lot of people understand that the policymakers and the lawmakers, when they're looking at crypto and Bitcoin specifically, they see the pros of it behind the technology and why it's very important for the everyday person like us, right? But they also see the cons, right? Which is what I want you to touch on pretty much. Like, why do you think they've, they're taking so long to really accept it or they've recognized the pros, but what do you think those cons are and how does that jeopardize the actual country, the economy and the political status that we currently have as a country? I, you know, I really think that most policymakers are completely uneducated in this space and not just uneducated on what Bitcoin is and this new emerging technology, because they have to, you know, they have to almost be ja a jack of all trades with all the different things um, that are that are important to their constituents and and who they represent. There's so many different issues at all all at once coming at them. I get that. And Bitcoin is so nuanced because at the end of the day, to understand Bitcoin, you have to understand our monetary system. And I mean, you could turn on the TV and I was guilty of this. I was a reporter for 10 years and I did not understand what money printing is, how our bond system worked, how our banking system was tied into the Federal Reserve and how it's just this like, like it's this intermix of just complicated, you know, backwards and forwards channels um, that the average person has no access to. Most people don't get it. Like, I don't believe that if you sat down with Kamala Harris, I don't care what your party affiliation is. I don't believe that you could sit down with her and have her explain to you in a very concise, clear way how money printing works and how our government actually finances itself. She doesn't, she does not know. Sit down with one of the biggest anchors at any network television company. Hey, explain money printing and how our financial system works. I guarantee you they will stumble over their words. They don't understand. A lot of people lack basic financial literacy and economics. And unfortunately, it permeates the walls of Washington, D.C. and Congress and all of these different agencies. Because to understand, you have to take the time to learn. And our education system hasn't even been set up for it. Our education system has reinforced this idea that inflation is good and inflation is going to track at 2% when all of that is a manipulated number because... 
You don't account for the asset inflation that's happening. You don't account for how much real estate has gone up. You don't account for, you know, the fact that S&P 500 on average has been going up 7%. Well, how much has the rate of dollars been going up? It's about 7 to 10%. So is anyone really making money? No, unless you use a ton of leverage. So the rich are getting richer. They're getting an increasing piece of the pie. And I think that that's, that's what's missing is being able to sit down and say, hey, everything that you thought you knew as a politician, as a, as a media person, it's not necessarily correct. And let's unlearn what we need to unlearn in order to understand how the financial system actually works and how economic theories um, basically have, you know, they have different they have different um, interpretations of, of how to create a sound economy. There are monetarists, there are Austrian economists, and there are the Keynesians. And we've just only learned about Keynesian economics, this idea that inflation is good and necessary, and we need a central government to intervene and to stabilize everything, when the reality is the intervention has just created a series of bubbles and bursts and bubbles and bursts and bubbles and bursts. Um, and so I just, you know, I think that these conversations need to be had. They need to be thoughtful, but it's, it's a struggle, right? It's a struggle because politicians are busy. They want to get reelected. The incentive system is broken and it encourages them to say whatever they need to say in order to get reelected. It's all about short-term thinking, short-term promises, short-term, I'll send you money. I will finance this. Cool. I'm the good guy. Vote for me. When in reality, that problem 10 years down the road metastasizes and is a huge, huge detriment to everybody else. Um, and someone has to pay the bill. And so I think it's about education. I really do. I think most of our policymakers don't understand money, so they don't understand Bitcoin. And most of our media people don't understand money, so they don't understand Bitcoin. And it's our job, those of us that have taken the time to study, to to do our best to educate them as well as the public so that the public makes the right decisions when it comes to voting these people in. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned things like the petrodollar, like big institutional politicians like Kamala Harris. I don't care what side you're on. Um, you could talk about Mitch McConnell on either side. There are institutional politicians. And when it comes to the media, mm -hmm. a lot of the, a, like these media companies are huge conglomerates. They make crazy amounts of money. And that's what their business model functions under. It's not about news. It's about what generates income and money. And I think what Bitcoin does to government, to people with power, to people with money is it challenges their status of power in society. Yes. And I think, yes, education is a big reason why our government hasn't been able to appropriately address Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto uh, ecosystem. But I think also a lot of these politicians realize that Bitcoin is a threat to the system that has allowed them to hold on to this power, right? We've never had a government or a state without money directly tied to it. We've yeah. never had stateless currency. That's completely revolutionary. And that's why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin. Um, but I think it, we shouldn't ignore the fact that Bitcoin does challenge positions of power. It challenges the systems of power and it challenges our system of money. So it's very complex in terms of who's, who's really interested in it and who's just ignorant and needs to be educated. Right. Mm -hmm. Completely. And, and unfortunately we now have people in leadership positions, whether they're in policy roles or media roles, who are actually touting things that are more communist or Marxist, which is, it terrifies me because my family grew up under communism. They know what that means in terms of the lack of, of rights um, that, that go to individuals. And I think we need to go back to the to the principles upon which our country was founded, which was this idea of revolution and rebellion from control and building a place that is based on freedom and property rights and this like individual drive to accomplish whatever dream you want to accomplish and the pursuit of happiness and property rights, freedom that is so core. It is so core to the values that built this country and it's what we need to return to. Um, and so you're right. We, we have a lot of challenges because people don't want to relinquish that power. But I think that although Bitcoin may pose what seems like a threat to 
the people that are in power, the greater threat is actually not getting this, not getting this right and descending into a deglobalized world where we're all just infighting and everyone becomes, you know, everyone creates their own central bank digital currencies and, and we isolate ourselves as like these network states and we're fighting among, I mean, that, that future to me looks like war and violence and exorbitant costs because supply chains break down. Um, a Bitcoin world to me is abundance, is opportunity, is hope. Uh, and so I think that the greater threat is actually not getting this right on Bitcoin. Absolutely. One of my last questions for you, Natalie, is how much, how attached do you think Bitcoin is to the rest of the crypto market? Obviously, like what we see with DeFi, NFT specifically being a huge thing, obviously, and bringing in mass adoption. Like how do you think they both go hand in hand or can one prosper without the other? Yeah. So I think that Bitcoin will prosper on its own as money. And I think that it will be adopted by countries, individuals, companies. I think this is a great time to, to get in, to get in, to learn and to stack and to learn how to hold it. The other things I think will, will evolve and will be interesting to see how, um, how regulators, you know, come in and actually say, Hey, these are crypto securities. Um, these are stable coins. These are digital currencies that we need as on and off ramps and to bank the unbanked around the world. I think stable coins will be a huge component of the digital economy. Um, and then which ones, you know, things like digital art, I totally understand the, the, the property argument for an artist, a musician, or someone who's creating physical works of art to want to maintain ownership and get you know, what they deserve in terms of when, when those pieces are sold and when, when their pieces are listened to, I get all of that, but it needs to be built on top of a form of money that is ethical and that is technically sound and that is truly scalable. And that is Bitcoin. Unfortunately, what I think people don't realize is all of the, in this ecosystem where everybody's experimenting and everyone has these ideas, nothing has been proven the way Bitcoin has. And ultimately in order to maintain the cost of a blockchain of a ledger, that's quote unquote decentralized, it's very expensive. And that's why things tend to centralize and you don't know what it's going to look like 10 years from now. These are great ideas to build on top of something and have have smart contracts and put your NFT on it. But what does that look like 10 years from now? Because the roadmap for some of these other projects and cryptocurrencies and platforms, there is no clarity or guarantee of what's going to happen because a lot of it's still being decided. It's being decided by a small group of individuals and developers. And that's a risk. That's a risk. You know, I would love to see a world where layers are built on top of Bitcoin in addition to the Lightning Network that could serve the purpose of smart contracts and things like NFTs. And people are actively working on that right now with upgrades like Taproot and Tarot. And, and they will have stable coins on Bitcoin. So for me, it's more so about making sure that whatever project is is happening is built on top of a foundation that is rock solid. It's not quicksand, but technically, economically, and ethically is sound. Bitcoin, we know, checks all of those boxes. The others, we don't. I think there's going to be regulation that comes in and intervenes. And I think the next 10 years, we will have a lot of these things answered. We will know what's a crypto security, what's a crypto property, what's a crypto uh, whatever, currency is in the form of a stable coin. And, uh, and I think again, all of it's going to make Bitcoin look really, really great. And, and I, I think that investing in companies that are growing within Bitcoin is actually going to be very, very profitable and meaningful because not only could you potentially, you know, make money through gains and equity, but also you, you can help facilitate the growth of Bitcoin, the adoption of Bitcoin. Um, the others are, to me, it's too early to know what anything else is because down the road, a lot of them will collapse onto themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've gotten a lot of good information from you, Natalie. Um, I want to wrap this up and I want to finish it off with one sentence. So I'm going to say something and I want you to fill in the rest. Bitcoin okay. is. Bitcoin is hope. For a better future. I love that. Absolutely. I love that. Awesome. Natalie, thank you so much for coming thank on. It was great so to have you. Make sure you guys check out Natalie's podcast below. We're also linked to her Twitter profile. Natalie, it was such a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you again. <laughs>